so much. Um, I think this actually, uh, the talk I'm going to give it intersects really nicely with what Scott was talking about. Although it, it's a bit, perhaps a little bit more uh, cynical or in some ways. So uh, basically, uh, I'm not a martial arts studies scholar. I work on mostly Chinese migration to Japan, but I have a long history of engagement with the martial arts. And part of the reason why I'm not a martial arts studies scholar is because of some of the things I'm going to talk about today. So in a similar mode, it's kind of autoethnographic. I'm an anthropologist by training. I'm going to talk about why I have found that I have a problem with authority. And also that I think that the martial arts context raises some issues around how we might think about authority as well. Um, now, this you might be wondering why I have this weird image here. This is a mid-journey AI-generated image, and I think it's a really interesting kind of place to start. So for those of you who don't know, mid-journey is a, a service that you can access via Discord, where basically you put in uh, written cues, and then it generates images based on an archive of materials developed from a really, really large data set from the internet. And the reason why I think it's interesting to use this to kind of start things off is, I just put in martial arts and authority into that. And it's always kind of, it tells you something about what wider popular culture is, is saying about particular kinds of keywords, I feel, at least. Because it's drawing from that internet archive. And telling you something that, there's a whole range of kind of expectations um, it's kind of a bit of an update, I would say, on Adam Frank's idea of the little Chinese man, where you've almost got wizard-like powers coming through. And that has been something that has drawn me through my long-term engagement. So much like Scott said, uh, and here is a lovely picture of me when I was much thinner and younger, um, uh, I, you know, have always loved martial arts. Uh, I, you know, I did... Uh, Judo as a little kid, then I watched Karate Kid, and I was like, no, nah, man, I'm going to do, do karate. So I did karate for a long time, but then um, I made lots of Chinese friends, and they had a woman who was teaching wushu out in the back garden, and so I spent most of my teen years learning how to do flips and kicks and all of that sort of stuff before then getting really interested in traditional Chinese martial arts. And so that was what led me to become a Chinese studies scholar and go and move to China, and this picture was taken 20 years ago when I was practicing as a Ba Gua Zhang and Xing Yichuan practitioner in Beijing, working uh, with a very well-known uh, teacher, but I'm not going to name who they are because I actually have some critical comments. But the thing that kind of drew me to this practice um, was, as Frank mentions, this search for the little old Chinese man. This kind of, we used to call it a Mr. Miyagi complex, which was basically, I had questions and I had this Orientalist sort of perception informed by a range of media products and informed by small conversations, engagements with books, etc., that I thought that I would find those sorts of answers there. And indeed, I found many of those. I had a wonderful experience at the time learning about the lineage, the old stories, and also developing my Chinese language and um, kind of developing a really complex language and theory that surrounds some of these particular practices. Th 
through that, and I think Paul mentioned this as well, you do have these strong bodily experiences that correlate with some of these keywords, and you develop new skills and imaginaries. And it was really a disciplining space, walking in circles every day for two years in Beijing, in a park, under the tuition of this particular person. It shifted my identity and my perceptions of Chineseness, and it created like sort of it will it reinforce some of my previous obsessions with things like wuxia novels and Taoist epistoontologies. Okay, so it was a really transformative experience for me, and this is actually what I wrote my honors dissertation. So for those of you who don't know, in the Australian context, honors is more like a master's. We write a twenty thousand word dissertation. And, um, and it was all about how these kinds of martial arts practices, with their use of esoteric language, manuals, etc., correspond with some of the masculine norms within Chinese, uh, like wider Chinese culture, particularly the distinction between wen, so scholarliness, and wu, which is what, as Cam Louis says, are the hegemonic masculine norms that inform ideals <coughs> within most of Northeast Asia. Now at that time, it was really interesting. Uh, my shuge, so my elder, uh, so my senior student, basically, uh, my senior student underneath the same teacher, um, said that you know one of the things that comes out of this practice that we were doing is that most people historically would have played a game called shuijiao, which is a kind of Chinese wrestling done on a sand pit with a very short coat, a little bit similar to judo. And he was like, and that kind of fills in the gaps between these sorts of things. And so he said, you look like a, a rough and tumble young lad. Why don't you do some shuijiao? And I said, well, there's no shuijiao in Australia. And he said, go and do judo. And so I started judo um, on my return. Now, as I returned to Australia and I started doing judo, um, I also started to do a lot of work helping promote internal Chinese martial arts within local communities in Australia, um, building friendship through martial arts, um, and this meant that at that time, so this is 2003, 4, 5, there were increasing opportunities for teachers to travel abroad to run seminars in camps. And my teacher had significant followings in various parts of the world. Now, my sugar at that time, then in his 50s, also attracted some attention because he had phenomenal physical prowess. And he was also a former Olympic team member for another sport and an all-China champion in various TMA divisions. But because of that dedication to that sport, he was incredibly poor. And he had a narrow education because he was put into Olympic training institutions. And so he basically didn't have many opportunities for his kids. And he worked as a construction worker and a taxi driver outside of his training, uh, the training context. And so when he was invited by a few people to travel and run seminars in different parts of the world that he dreamed of visiting, he obviously leapt at that opportunity. But when this started to happen, I received a letter in Chinese that I was very carefully asked to translate that asked me to explain to all of the other students that my sugar had not upheld his obligations. He'd asked students, uh, the, the teacher asked students not to contact this person anymore and to redirect any funds that they had intended for him 
to the teacher. Now, the teacher was absolutely financially fine. They bought houses, all of these sorts of things. And they said in that letter, they said, under what authority he had to travel around teaching without compensating the shifu. This left me with such a deep discomfort. And this actually happened after I wrote my dissertation. It left me with such a de deep discomfort that I decided to leave traditional Chinese martial arts. My kind of vision of the little old Chinese man who had been a source of so much uh, joy was totally destroyed because of this kind of hierarchical and I thought quite exploitative approach to a man who had actually, you know, really not had many opportunities. And so this context really started to make me think about, and this is kind of the other side and perhaps part of the problem that Scott's mentioning in some of the more hierarchical martial arts, that this question of authority, and I took inspiration from this use of the word chun yi, chun, um, it's not quite the same as authority. It also can mean right in uh, Chinese. So rights and authority are kind of conflated within the Chinese language in a way that you don't have that within a lot of the European uh, context. Uh, but it made me think about, okay, so what do we actually mean when we start to talk about the authority of the teacher, the authority, what are the forces that feed into this, and how does that shape our understanding of martial arts? Now, authority is also a really big category within the social, like cl classic social sciences. Um, as Ferretti recently uh, explained, it's, it resembles something more than force needed to maintain order and social cohesion. And in, indeed, Hans Joas, uh, who's made a, a large series of lectures around social theory, said it's actually at the core of one of the three big questions of the social sciences, which are what do you count as social action? So what do you empirically look at? Uh, what is social order and how is it maintained? So that's this authority question. And then also what causes or how do things change? So what causes social change? So it's this old fundamental category where Marx, Durkheim, Weber, all of those kind of classic, beardy, old white men um, were really obsessed with it. But I actually think that the martial arts really raised something around this question of authority in very compelling ways. Most theories posit it as something outside of action, something <coughs> attributed from wider contexts, from structures, discourses. And indeed, I would actually argue that most of Foucault's discussions of power in its generic form are really discussions of authority. He's talking about the authority of the sciences, the authority of particular legal institutions in shaping things like madness, sexuality, etc. So having given up on that and then found a new love in uh, judo, which uh, actually you know, is uh, the kind of father sport of BJJ, um, I've discovered a really lovely community of very informal people where instead of being told, like, this is the perfect way to do a technique, they were like, come and have a wrestle. And they were just like, get in there, have a go. If I win, that's good. If you win, that's good. And that is kind of how they tried to kind of, in some senses, I felt, unpack some of the authoritarian dynamics within more formalized martial arts. But obviously judo is also a very formal martial art in its own way. Nonetheless, I became really interested in play as a mode of trying to think past some of these problems with authority and power. 
you know, uh, it's a way of training with resistance as if you were trying to kill each other, but you can kind of play around with it. You don't necessarily have to adhere to uh, strict taolu or chuanfa, as is the case in both a lot of traditional martial arts. I was really in, in compelled by the egalitarianism of randori, or rolling, as we might call it, which is just free rolling. And, but nonetheless, I then started to find that actually there were issues there. So after returning to Australia, I then moved to Japan to do my PhD, and I trained at the Kodokan, um, which is the major center for judo. And um, I realized that even though it's a sport and there's this kind of playful arena, there's still rules, of course. And those rules sometimes raise up issues around different national identities, etc. And there was an instance where I still remember uh, getting in there, rolling around with uh, a second dan black belt and managing to catch, catch him with what is called a kataguruma. So for those of you who don't know, kataguruma is like a big fireman's throw. Now the kataguruma has been, had, uh, at that time had been banned from Olympic judo. They were like really sick and tired of Russians and many Central Asians beating them with kataguruma's. So they were like, no, no more kataguruma. Uh, but uh, I didn't know that. I'd come from rough and tumble Australia where most judo players also play rugby. And uh, so I caught them with this kataguruma and there was this silence and then the teacher said like, which is just like, yeah, that's like very good, very good, but that's enough. And so it made me realize that there's another method through which authority is produced. This is the rule sets that we play underneath. Okay. So. So we see this way in which, I, as Adam Frank has mentioned, identity moves, we've got all of these different ways. So you've got discursive forms of power, you've got rule sets within games, even if they feel un, uh, kind of more egalitarian. And there's nothing new in this. And I apologize, because I'd actually intended to do a much more comprehensive review of the literature within martial arts studies, but I didn't actually have the time because life. Um, so I really welcome feedback from everyone. But I think that Analyses that situate martial arts in a pop culture context or in relation to identity discourses um, really need to interrogate this question of authority. And I have come across some literature that I actually think, in some senses, feeds into the sorts of authoritarian or like power dynamics that enable the sorts of things that really upset me about traditional Chinese martial arts. And I think that this is particularly pertinent in the mainland Chinese martial arts context at the moment due to the central position in current regimes of discourse around national identity and an, an emphasis on individual performance rather than resistant and interactive competition. So the way in which Chinese martial arts are forming at the moment are incredibly connected to Xi Jinping Sixiang at the moment, which I think has quite a lot of big issues. Now, for those of you who might know, and I thought I'd bring in a little bit of Bruce Lee. Thanks. Uh, Mao Zedong was a huge fan of Bruce Lee. Uh, and in fact, during a period when it was very difficult to screen uh, foreign films in China, Fist of Fury, The Big Boss, and The Way of the Dragon were actually screened in China. And they were on a big public release, and they were specifically commissioned by Mao Zedong at that time. Uh, this is based on uh, recollections from uh, Zhang Yufeng, but uh, Mao Zedong apparently was particularly enamored when Bruce Lee uh, fought 
Japanese soldiers, etc. And uh, that's one of these things where you can start to see how, at one point, the anti-imperialist narratives of a lot of Bruce Lee films and the kinds of dynamics there can be reinterpolated within a Chinese national context that can actually feed into, I mean, at that time, I think they're still totally fair anti-imperialist uh, modes of thinking because obviously Japanese aggression within China was horrible. But at the same time, what happens as that continues? How do we interrogate that? Uh, interestingly, uh, Zhong Weilin and, and Wen Xuanzai uh, argue that, that basically traditional Chinese martial arts serve two roles within uh, the kind of wider global context at the moment, which is the promotion of patriotism and commercial exploitation. And they kind of look at this in a strange way that doesn't actually sound that critical of it. They just say that this is kind of good and that in a sense it'll help develop two of the major policy goals of the Xi Jinping regime, which is cultural confidence, and also the promotion of excellent traditional Chinese culture. So again, when we start to think about the kinds of discourses and modes that we might celebrate within the martial arts, I also think we need to think about authority and what authorities are we propping up. And so this is where my kind of love of play and combat sports, because I still, you know, I do BJJ now, um, intersects with the figure of Xu Xiaodong, um, who some of you might have seen in the journal for martial arts studies, uh, having a few honorable mentions. But for those of you who don't know, Xu Xiaodong is a controversial combat sport uh, Wang Hong, so an uh, influencer in uh, China today. And he got really kind of embroiled in a, a series of spats, particularly with uh, Tai Chi practitioners, calling out fraud and hypocrisy in traditional Chinese martial arts. And this kind of intersects really interestingly with Megan's uh, uh, talk yesterday, because when she presented uh, the comments that are in that YouTube uh, um, video, I went back and had a look. And alongside uh, the plentiful number of white dudes who had their own opinions about this sort of stuff, as she mentioned, there were actually quite a lot of Chinese language comments written in characters that suggest that they were from mainland China, making very similar kinds of comments. So there's this kind of internal conflict and discourse within that around the role of traditional Chinese martial arts. Now, he... Uh, I won't go into all of the details, but basically he started challenging traditional martial artists who were saying, I'm a, a very powerful traditional Chinese martial artist, I can do all these sorts of things, and he baited them. And he's not actually that pleasant a public figure in that sense, so I'm not going to say, oh yeah, he's a great guy. But I do admire him for his willingness to be controversial. Um, famously, he beat a Tai Chi master um, in 20 seconds by knocking him out. And since then, uh, he's been embroiled in a range of legal battles around defamation, most of which he's lost, so he's had to pay quite a lot of compensation. But this has, weirdly enough, created a feedback loop where he needs to earn money to pay off the fines that he has to pay for defaming people. Um, some have argued that this precipitated the Wushu Association of China, discouraging the use of terms like master anymore. And um, Xu has since had his passport cancelled and has been heavily censored and intimidated by government associated organizations. And he's also become very political. So um, he's been very vocal about the Hong Kong protests. He's supported Chen Chu Shu 
And he also was part of the Wuhan Diaries um, and helped promote the Wuhan Diaries at a time when that was being censored within the Chinese context as well. So basically, I think that the martial arts are a really interesting field for thinking about power. And, and this has come out of a very personal experience, as you can tell, where, as Michael Oakeshott says, the most fundamental of all distinctions in political thought is the distinction between force or violence and authority, between potential, which is physical, and autoritas, which is mental, between might and right. And so there's this tension between the kinds of discursive forms and institu institutional forms, I think, that demand obedience, as Hannah Arendt says, or the forms of coercion. There's something about violence in itself that actually conflicts this. And Xu Xiaodong is a kind of interesting example of that, the way in which combat sports collide with traditional martial arts. Traditional martial arts, I think, relying more on discursive and institutionalized forms of authority, whereas there's something else going on within combat sports, even though there are still authority dynamics in the rule sets that they play. I actually wondered whether this might kind of link to some of what Paul is thinking about in terms of the sublime. There's some point where you get a balance between those two. And so basically, I had some questions for everyone, which is, so authority is a legitimated form. We've got uh, these wider contexts. We need to think about what happens when we talk about film, what happens when we talk about laws and institutions, and also governance mechanisms. But then how do we balance that with the kind of resistive capacity of the actual act of violence and forms of contained violence that help us explore those sublime moments. Thanks very much.